Let's turn to Revelation chapter 12, and once you find your place, we'll have a word of prayer and get underway. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for being with us and being gracious to us in the midst of our sin. We thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, and we thank you that he was willing to love us even to the point of death. We do praise you for the power that was demonstrated in his resurrection, and we do look in hope to you because of his ascension, and because he now sits on the right hand of God and reigns from there, and is now bringing every enemy under his feet. We thank you that we who were his enemies have now been brought under his feet and have been subdued by the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the illumination of that spirit, enlightening our eyes and enabling us to understand the scriptures, and we do pray for further enlightenment tonight as we look to the scriptures and do pray that these would not simply be matters for academic study, but that what we see here and the truths we learn would be translated into life, that it would make a real difference practically in the way that we behave ourselves in this world. We do pray that we might be faithful to the scriptures and that you would receive glory from our study tonight. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We've been studying the book of Revelation for some time now, and right before the uh, Christmas break, we finished the 11th chapter, which is something of a climax in the book of Revelation because it brings us to the declaration that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, which um, ends the first series of judgments in the book of Revelation, the trumpet judgments, which, as I have interpreted, apply to the downfall of um, Jerusalem in AD 70. The judgment that God sends against those who are false Jews, that is, who continue to claim to be his people but are not because they've rejected the Messiah, uh, is seen finally, even as Jesus said on his way to Golgotha, in the fact that uh, Jerusalem has now been judged. That's a sign that Jesus Christ is reigning in heaven and that the kingdoms of this world are now destined to become his. Chapter 12 is what we should be studying tonight, and in a sense we will be studying tonight. However, I think we need some background before we can look at chapter 12. Uh, before you leave, make sure you get one of the white sheets, one of the study sheets for next month's uh, study that has, uh, I think, a dozen questions on it to help you prepare for chapter 12 and our study of it. But uh, anyway, looking at chapter 12, just real briefly, I'm not going to read it for you. You'll notice that it begins with a description of a woman with uh, astronomical features, and then another description of a wonder scene in heaven, a great red dragon that is persecuting the woman, and more particularly the man-child that she's about to give birth to. And then in verse 7 we read, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels going forth to war with the dragon, and the dragon warred and his angels, and they prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast down, the old serpent, he that is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was cast down to the earth, and his angels were cast down with him. And then um, it goes on to describe the declaration of the kingdom of God having come, how uh, God's people overcome because of the shed blood of the Lamb. And then the dragon is seen persecuting the woman. She flees through the wilderness. She is saved there, and because the dragon has been unsuccessful against the woman in the wilderness, 
he finally turns in verse 17 to persecute the seed of the woman uh, elsewhere. Uh, this is a very interesting chapter, and I think you'll enjoy your study and preparation for it, and you'll also, I hope, we'll be back in a month to see what we have to say about it. But I think tonight, before we even look at this, we need to talk about angels. We, we don't do a lot of talk about angels, do we? I mean, how long has it been since you've had a good, rousing discussion of angels with somebody, or have you ha had a Bible study on that particular subject? Because one of the crucial features of this chapter is the warfare in heaven between Michael and his angels and the dragon and his angels, I think it's necessary for us um, to do a little bit of study to get some biblical background on angels, and that's what I intend for us to do with our hour tonight. Uh, as we begin, I have a couple of uh, articles from the newspaper the last couple of years that I happened to clip that are of interest. I won't read them entirely, but um, you might be interested in this. From uh, November 1st, 1981, the headline is, The Attorney Will Persist in Demonic Defense from Danbury, Connecticut. The devil has been ejected from the courtroom, but a defense attorney who blames Satan for a Connecticut murder says he will not stop trying to prove the existence of a demonic force. I was flabbergasted, Attorney Martin Manella said last week after two heated exchanges with Judge Robert Callahan, who called evidence of demonic possession unscientific and, quote, incompetent as a defense. Now, I'm not going to comment tonight as to uh, the competency of that defense in general or in that particular case, but it, it does show you something of the attitude in our day toward the idea of a demonic force. It's very unscientific to think that sort of thing. And then uh, from uh, April 30, 1982, Rialto, a fortune teller has been charged with defrauding her clients by promising to rid them of evil spirits, a sheriff's vice investigator said Thursday. Um, Amy Todorovich, 45, was arrested on two felony counts of winning by fraudulent means under a state law enacted in 1872. The statute, last amended more than 100 years ago, bans pretensions to fortune-telling, among other things, and it goes on to tell the rest of the story. Uh, now, whether she could or could not rid people of evil spirits, I have no way of knowing, but again, um, the reason this is newsworthy is because people can't believe that anybody would take seriously the idea of evil spirits today. And, of course, the emphasis here is upon any law dealing with that sort of thing being well over 100 years old. We're much more enlightened than that. Now, I think our first impression when we hear this sort of thing as uh, Bible-believing Christians is to say that and just goes to show what uh, secular humanism has done, what unbelief, uh, uh, the effects of unbelief, that sort of thing. But, you know, Christians aren't really much better than that. I have not found in all my experiences as a Christian in the church very much emphasis upon angels, demons. They're not taken very seriously. I, I suggest that if we took it seriously, we would pay more attention to it. I don't mean that we would get caught up with necessarily uh, the worship of angels or uh, that sort of thing, but the fact that we neglect the subject of angels um, so pervasively, I think it's a bad sign in the church, and I hope tonight we'll begin to correct that in our study. I'd like to do what I have done in the past and, and go, over, uh, go around the group and pass out some Bible verses so that as we come to them we can keep moving uh, rather quickly. And so if you um, can, I'm going to probably give you four or five at a crack here, although I'll, I'll try to go around systematically make sure everybody has some. Um, Colossians 1.16, Mary Beth, Jonathan, Psalm 148, verses 2 and 5, 
Vicki, Hebrews 1.14, uh, Glenn, Luke 24.39, Janet, Acts 12, verse 7, Kathy, Numbers 22.31, uh, Craig, Luke 8, verse 30, Greg, Luke 20, verse 36, Marcel, um, Luke 15.10, Brian, 1 Peter 1.12, Kevin, Hebrews 1.6, Mary Beth, Luke 1.13, uh, John, Matthew 24.36, put your finger in the one passage and then turn to the other one. Um, Vicki, Genesis 19.1, Glenn, Psalm 103.20, Janet, Revelation 5.11, Kathy, Isaiah 6, verses 2 and 6, Craig, Luke 1, verses 19 and 26, Greg, Daniel 8, verse 16 and 9.21, those go together, 8.16 and 9.21, And I'll leave it at that. I'm going to pick up with Marcel when we come back. Okay, I want to do a little survey, first of all, what the Bible teaches us about angels. And the first, um, the first thing we need to know is some of the characteristics of angels as the Bible presents them to us. Before we look at these verses, though, let me just mention the word angel, the name or word angel, uh, means technically a messenger and can be applied to just ordinary messengers. Luke, the seventh chapter, mentions a messenger coming someone in, in the Greek word angelos is used. Um, the prophets of the Old Testament, according to Isaiah 42, are called angels. In Malachi 2.7, the priests of the Old Testament are called angels. In Revelation chapter 1, New Testament ministers are called angels. You know, I think I've commented in the past, if uh, after the worship services you come up and address me as Angel Bonson, that would be entirely appropriate biblically, although culturally it would be completely um, askew. And then in Isaiah 43, verse 9, Christ himself is called the angel of the Lord. So angel means messenger, and it can be taken in, in a number of ways, just ordinary messenger, prophet, priest, minister, and Christ himself. But now we're going to be speaking of the supernatural creatures that we ordinarily think of when we use the word angel in our study. And the first thing we need to learn about them is that they are created beings. Colossians 1.16. I thought I'd talked long enough. <laughs> okay. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Is anything left out of that description? So that angels are included, but they're included more specifically if, if you remember that thrones and dominions in Pauline language uh, refers to orders of angels in particular, and so he says they have been created too. Psalm 148, verses 2 and 5. Praise him, praise him, all his angels, praise him, all his heavenly hosts. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Yeah, all the heavenly hosts, the angels of God, um, were created at his command as well. 
So angels are not eternal beings. They did come into existence at a particular point. Uh, it's, it's fun reading some of the theologians on this question because they get into um, rousing debates over uh, when angels were created. Were they created before the first day of creation in Genesis? Were they created on the fourth day? That's a particular favorite. Were they created the sixth day just before man? Well, we won't get into that. The important thing is that they were created beings. And what kind of beings are they? The Bible says, um, well, let's, let's look at a couple of passages. Hebrews 1.14 in conjunction with Luke 24.39. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Okay, angels are called ministering spirits. And then what do we read in Luke 24.39? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Jesus explains after his resurrection and passing that a spirit does not have flesh and bones. So if angels are ministering spirits, they don't have flesh and bones. Um, the technical word for that is incorporeal. They do not have a corpus. They do not have a body like we do. So they are created. They are incorporeal. And as incorporeal, they have rather strange abilities. Um, Luke 8.30. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons have entered him. Here is one individual, and a legion of demons have entered him. Now what that tells you is that angels can be very, um, very compressed. You can get a lot of them in one place, right? <laughs> As incorporeal, that's not... What was that, Mary Beth? <laughs> You always throw us off. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, On the head of a pen, I said. Well, I was going to come to that, but since you brought it up, this is what, this is, I'm tempted in our presbytery exam sometimes to ask a, a candidate for the ministry that question, not, be, not, not to be funny at all, because people who use that, that, that is traditionally the example of how vain theology is and how futile you know, all these debates are. Medieval theology was so, it had nothing better to do but to debate how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. Well, as it turns out, that was just a real graphic way of illustrating one of the key questions in the whole history of philosophy, namely, is matter the principle of individuation? Now, you were all thinking about that today, right? <laughs> now, the, the issue here is, is it, is it um, the flesh and blood that I have that makes me different from, say, a twin that I might have? Uh, obviously, it's not the form. We have the same looking body, the same functions and all that. Is it just the matter that makes us different? And so, the, the importance of matter as individuating things is debated. And so, theologians ask, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? And the answer is either one or an infinite number. One, because on the head of a pin, only one angel would fit if it's material if that's what individuates things, but it's infinite if angels are incorporeal and it's only the form of angels that differs. You see, on that basis, every angel must be different in form because they can't be different in matter. Anyway, that's not a, not a feudal theological question. It's just a real, uh, it was in the medieval world, a cute way of bringing up a, a very heavy philosophical issue. But they are densely concentrated can be densely concentrated, according to Luke 8.30. And they have strange abilities. Acts 12, verse 7. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and the light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Here's Peter in prison, door is locked, and all of a sudden, there's an angel. 
I would, I would consider that a rather extraordinary ability, and uh, I think that's tied to their incorporeal nature. Then Numbers 2231. But if he struck him, doesn't that mean that the angel was able to take on some kind of a... They're able to affect things in the physical world. But also, he, he made an appearance. There was something to see. Yes, we're going to see that angels do appear. Uh, Gabriel appears to Mary, for instance, and speaks. And so um, their incorporeal body can be visibly seen. But it can also have substance. Otherwise, how could it hit his head? Well, that's what I was saying. They can have effects in the physical world. They could move physical objects or touch physical things in such a way that they, you know, felt like a uh, regular body and touched them. Brian? Are you going to touch on the, uh, uh, <laughs> sorry, uh, <laughs> are you going to uh, talk about the uh, visitors to Abraham, or Abram, Abraham and Sarah? I have that verse. And <laughs> sorry, okay. Yeah, in passing, I wasn't going to concentrate on that as a theme, but that does come up as one of our okay. proof texts, yes. Okay, Numbers 2231. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. Oh, that's a great story. You know the story of Balaam's ass? Okay, Balaam is this false prophet who um, was, was going to go and, and prophesy in a way that God didn't want him to do. And so he's riding this ass, and the ass balks in the road and won't go any further. And Balaam gets really angry, you know, and beats the ass and that sort of thing. And then, as the verse says here, finally his eyes are open. Uh, he can see the angel of the Lord standing there. So again, we have this extraordinary ability. The angel's um, uh, invisible and then can make itself visible. All right, so they are created. We've learned that tonight. We've learned that they are incorporeal and they have very strange abilities. Moreover, they are immortal. They do not die. Luke 20, verse 36. Neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. Okay, so Jesus here, speaking of the, the subject of immortality, likens them to angels in that they cannot die anymore. So once an angel is created, it does not go out of existence. Angels are always there. They never die. What kind of beings are angels? Are they like vegetables? Are they like animals? Are they like human beings? Well, they are personal beings, the Bible would teach us. They love and they rejoice, Luke 15:10. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. That, I think, has got to be one of the neatest verses in the Bible. God says that when a sinner repents, when conversion takes place, there's a party in heaven. The angels rejoice to see sinners come to salvation. And uh, they have desires, these angels. They, they want things from time to time. 1 Peter 1.12 Unto whom it was revealed, that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost, sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. The Old Testament prophets didn't fully understand the nature of this salvation that was coming, that the Messiah should suffer and then enter into his glory. What kind of Messiah is this? Beyond that, the Bible tells us that the angels desire to look into these things. I think they wonder at the fact that God should save 
fallen humanity. Why you should pay any attention to the miserable creatures that we are. And so they desired to look into this, to know more about it. So, like us, they love, they rejoice, they have desires, they want to know things. In Hebrews 1.6, we learn that they um, do other things which people or persons do. Hebrews 1.6. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he said, And let all the angels of God worship him. Angels engage in worship, which of course we knew already from Revelation chapters 4 and 5. We studied the throne room of God and the presence of the angels that are worshiping him. Angels can talk. This is no surprise to you. Luke 1.13. Mm -hmm. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Okay, angels are knowledgeable. Matthew 24.36. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the See, it wouldn't make any sense for Jesus to say, not even the angels in heaven, if they didn't know things. In fact, they apparently know quite a bit, because Jesus says, not even the angels know this. So, uh, you wouldn't say, not even the angels, if they were limited in their understanding. They seem to know quite a bit. And they uh, come and go, Genesis 19.1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. Okay, now when these angels came to Sodom, Vicki, did Lot say to himself, these are angels from God, look at their wings. <laughs> no. So what does that tell you about angels? Do all of them have wings? Do they have halos? Are they, do they wear white robes? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> do they float along? Do they have harps? I mean, the whole nine yards, the picture we have of angels is wrong. You see, these were like normal individuals who came to um, Sodom, and Lot took them just to be visitors, human visitors to Sodom, but they were angels from God. Now, would you say, Kathy? I said, where did we get it? I mean, I know, I, you know, I've studied art, but... Where did they get it? It's coming. We'll, yeah. we'll see. There's some places in the Bible where it does describe them that way. That's right. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. They All do, right. They do eat, though, don't they? Occasionally. With Abraham. They did eat with Abraham, yes. And they were apparently uh, being entertained, and I take it fed in Lot's home. Um, Abraham, he didn't know right from the beginning, did he? That he I mean, wouldn't that say that they took on human form for them to eat? Not just that they had these see-through bodies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it would. It would indicate that they were able to engage in physical acts like eating, sure. Or touching Peter or what have you. And yet they are incorporeal because they are spirits and they have not flesh and blood. But were they incorporeal while they were? No. They were corporeal for a while. That, that is a little bit strange. Now, I told you that, though. I remember earlier in the lesson, I said they have very strange abilities. Okay. okay. Why was it so, why was it such a, if you don't mind me asking. I don't mind. <coughs> why was it such a big thing that Jesus said, uh, you know, touch my uh, hands and see, for I have flesh and blood that the Spirit doesn't have. And yet, uh, and the uh, two visitors to Abraham could have said, look, touch us, we have, we have flesh too. Obviously, he could see, or you know, it was it was obvious that well, they I hit didn't the, have 
flesh. Yeah, I think the way they're presented in the Bible, though, the readers, the faithful readers of the Scripture would understand, this is very strange, these angels are able to uh, take on physical manifestation. I don't think they would have said, oh, the very nature, in the nature of the case, angels um, have physical bodies. It's just that angels can make use of physical bodies. I think, think the difference there, though, is that an angel could not have been crucified like Christ was. An angel can simulate being flesh and blood. No, but the proof that Jesus said that it was him was the fact that he had flesh. Well, he, he, he was pointing to a sign in his hand at the same time. Yeah, but I don't yeah. think that he was comparing himself with an angel. I think that he was probably um, just like how people today sometimes believe in ghosts. I'm sure there were people in those days sure. too. That I mean, I think that he was saying, a go "I'm not a ghostly spirit. Not I'm not an angelic spirit." Yeah, I think what Christ is saying is this is a bodily resurrection after all. It, don't think that this is just the ghost that has now come back to appear to you. Hi, Bob. We're talking about angels. All right. <laughs> angels are um, created, incorporeal, immortal, and we've just seen they are personal. They love, rejoice, desire, worship, talk, know things, come and go. And they are very mighty, according to the Bible. Psalm 103, verse 20. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Mighty in strength. They're very powerful beings. Be good to have them on your side if you got into problems, right? How many angels are there? I don't need to know a statistic like in a census, but should we think of angels as being, well, there's a moderate number of angels, or, well, actually, just a very few. God's very sparse with angels, or there's a whole lot of them. <laughs> Revelation 5, verse 11. And I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. Anybody got their calculator here? What is ten thousand <laughs> times ten thousand? And um, there's another passage that speaks of twice ten thousand times ten thousand, as I recall. But anyway, the point is that there are a lot of angels, millions of angels. Now, how is it that there can be, I'm going to come back to this as I make my applications later in our lesson, but how can there be millions of these real beings and we don't pay any attention to them? We don't think about it. It doesn't affect us at all. What's that? No. no I don't think quite like that, Kevin. Is this, does this run in the family, Mary Beth? Out of sight, out of mind. Excuse me. The last thing we want to learn about angels themselves, and we want to talk about their history, is uh, that they are in orders. There are ranks of angels. Um, first of all, the Bible speaks of cherubim. Uh, in fact, in the earliest chapters of the Bible, the cherubim are stationed where? at the Garden of Eden, at the gate of the Garden of Eden, to keep man and his wife from returning to the Garden. Uh, they are placed symbolically on the Ark of the Covenant. They appear in Ezekiel's vision, the Old Testament. And in Ezekiel's vision, remember the cherubim, you want to know how strange these beings are, they have four faces, and they have four wings, 
and they appear around the throne of God in the book of Revelation. We've studied this before. Now, there's another rank of angels in addition to cherubim. By the way, what is a cherub? I was a little baby angel. <laughs> 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 I, I knew we I knew could get her to bite on that one. Most people think of cherubs as little angelic pudgy beings, right? They couldn't keep anybody out of the garden to eat. No. Cherub You need to know something about Hebrew. The ending the im ending in Hebrew is plural. So cherubim means many cherubs. Alright? Cherub is just singular. I don't know. It'd be interesting to track this down in English, why cherub comes to mean a little baby kind of angel that's kind of pudgy. It just means a single angel of that particular rank. Okay, there are cherubim. Now the Bible says there are also seraphim. Isaiah 6, verses 2 and 6. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. Right, so seraphs, describe them for us. By the way, seraphs is just the English way of saying seraphim, right? What does the I-M mean in Hebrew? It's plural, so seraphim means many seraphs. They have six wings. Mm -hmm. What do they do with their wings? Two cover their face, mm -hmm. and two cover their feet. Mm -hmm. with, with two, two they, they fly. fly. So the two that we would... They have faces and feet. That's another thing you learn by this passage, okay? And... But how do you grab the tongs? They have hands, too. <laughs> they have hands. All right. It's kind of like in the cartoons where the wings turn into hands for a moment. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it, re it refers to the, his hand. It says he had a live coal in his hand. Yes. No, they have hands. I think he had, here, it, perhaps we come the closest to what is the uh, cultural idea of, it, of an angel. They look like a human being, but they can fly. They have wings on their back. But then they also have wings, apparently, that they use to cover their face and their feet. Why cover their face and feet? Very important lesson here. Because they stand in the presence of God. And God is so holy and so majestic that they must cover their face for the glory of God and cover their feet to indicate the holiness that is required to be in his presence. So, um, I don't know. The more I study angels, I get kind of goosebumps. This is really interesting to me. Do they ever speak of any... I mean, I would imagine since this is the King James, they may... There may be some tendency... I don't know. Is, are there any spoken of in the feminine gender? One of the debates in theology about angels is whether angels have gender, mm -hmm. whether there are male and female angels. Now, what would be the, if you held the, the view that there are no male and female angels, what would be your proof text for that, Bob? Well, you're coming close to the argument here, Greg. Well, I don't know if it's in Galatians. I know it's in the Gospels where the Lord talks about in relationship to um, the resurrection that there is neither male nor female in heaven. Well, he doesn't say there's not male or female. That would settle the issue. What he does say is what, Vicki? 
Yes, they are not given in marriage, but are like the angels. People reason backwards. If angels aren't given in marriage, then they have no need of sexual organs, and consequently there are no, um, no gender distinctions among angels. Does that follow logically, Bob, since you brought up logic? Does it follow that um, because they don't enter into marriage, they don't have... I don't think God would, would give beings a trait that's unnecessary. You know, there's just something that's... Like belly button. Like oh, yeah. <laughs> it might, I mean, they sing. Do they have one? You know, they well, do they walk? Therefore, do they have one? <laughs> well, yeah, they have well that, that, that isn't necessarily a function. I mean, that in and of itself isn't necessarily a function of gender. It can be. But I don't know. I, I, there are. <laughs> Mary Beth, I'm trying to avoid I mean, your hand. I did, I'm so afraid to let you into this conversation. <laughs> All right, Mary Beth, what did you well, want to say? Heard. Now, I'm not saying that I agree with this or disagree oh, with no. I heard. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> no. I heard. The reason that they have to say his or you know male is because they are neither, but we don't have a word that means yes. in between. We do not. It's like we call God, he isn't necessarily. Yeah. Well, that's that. Now that's, now that's the, I'm bringing it. No, that's not true. In Greek, um, you could refer to them in the neuter gender. There is a gender in okay, Greek well, for okay. neuter. In fact, the Holy Spirit um, appears in the neuter gender. And one of the arguments is to overcome that, to, to prove the personality of the spirit. Well, what, the, um, what did they use? What did they say, he or she, the one then? Well, given masculine names, Gabriel, Michael, and I assume that that means that there are at least some male angels. Or they... <laughs> now, somebody, somebody has, has been taught by me long enough to have said, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute. It, uh, <laughs> that doesn't mean, this doesn't, that doesn't mean, the fact that a masculine name is given doesn't prove that they are masculine beings. It could prove that they engage in what? Masculine task. Okay. So, my conclusion, I thought you might say that. My conclusion is that we don't know whether angels have gender or not. No, I was, really, I was thinking about the fact that they ward. I mean... They perform dominion type activities. Yes, and that's why I think they are. That that alone, that alone could account for the male um, names. But it may be that it's beyond. It's not just function. It could be that they also have male type bodies too. Yes. Uh, if anybody wants to speculate or think about <laughs> we don't do speculation. Yeah, it's it's obvious we don't do that here. Uh, um, C.S. Lewis in uh, the Space Trilogy. Yeah. Yes. Things about gender. He said there's seven genders of angels. Hmm. And it's like, it's like God is the most masculine. Well, we were talking, <laughs> let's get back now on, on firmer ground. We were talking about <laughs> orders of angels. There are cherubim, there are seraphim. Now, here's another order of angel, apparently. Luke 1, verses 19 and 26. sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Now in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Okay, so here's the angel Gabriel carrying out the will of God, bringing messages in particular, and he identifies his rank as one who stands in the presence of God. He's one of the angels who's in the immediate vicinity of God. 
Uh, that, no. Well, somebody help me. Is Gabriel ever called an archangel? I don't think so. I may be wrong. I'm sure you'll tell me if I am. <laughs> Daniel 8, verse 16, and Daniel 9, verse 21. Uh, just a second. Jonathan? I think archangel is neither cherubim nor seraphim. I think it's a different kind of rank altogether. Michael. Archangel means highest angel. Michael is so there's only Yeah, one. now I see, I was going to come to that. Michael is the archangel, according to uh, Daniel 10, Jude 9. And, of course, we read about it tonight, too, Revelation 12, Michael the archangel and his angels. It would appear that Michael is the leader of all the unfallen angels. Now, whether Gabriel is a co-leader, you'd have to, I would think you'd have to have biblical evidence for him being an archangel, and I can't think of any. Well, what do we read about in Daniel 8, 16, and 9, 21? And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uliah, which, call, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. 921. Nay, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. It would appear from this and the fact that Gabriel appears with the message to Zacharias and to Mary that Gabriel makes God's will and word known and understood. He apparently functions in that sense. He is of the rank standing in the presence of God, angel. And his particular task is to make revelation known uh, from God. And then we have, as I've said, these other passages speak of Michael the archangel. Now, in Pauline theology, we also read of thrones, dominions, powers, principalities. Different words, which again, most uh, interpreters uh, believe are ranks of angels. In, in that particular case, probably ranks of fallen angels. The fallen angels have ranks too. So... Uh, Greg, you have a question? Well, I think it's in Isaiah, and there's uh, maybe one or two other verses that seem to imply that there's an angel that keeps books, there's another angel that, that records times of events and so forth, almost to the point that you would want to speculate that every minutia of detail of what happens, let's say, on the earth, mm -hmm. is tended to, recorded, relayed back and forth to God. By and you say there's a passage in Isaiah that suggests yeah, that? It, yeah, it, it talks about either a keeper of books, now maybe it's in Daniel, and of time. Yeah, look that up during the uh, next month and bring it back to us next okay. month. I'd like to see that. That's interesting. Uh, that brings up the question, what do angels do? Okay, so the function of angels, we're going to have to move a little bit faster here. Um, I left off Marcel, Revelation 5.11. Now, Brian, Psalm 103, verse 21. We've had these two before, but I, and we need to reread them. Bob, Acts 7, verse 53. Kevin, Acts 12, verse 23. Uh, Mary Beth, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7. Uh, Jonathan, Hebrews 1, 14. Vicki, Psalm 91, verses 10 to 12. Glenn, Matthew 18, 10. Janet, Jude 6, Kathy, 2 Peter 2, 4, uh, Craig, 1 John 3, verses 8 to 10, Greg, Matthew 25, 31, Marcel, 1 Timothy 
5.21 Brian, Hebrews 2.16 Bob, Colossians 2, verses 10 and 15 and Kevin, Hebrews 1, verses 4 to 13 I think we can get through this, and then I, I have a, some extended comments about the importance of this subject that we've been studying tonight I would like to do too. We started a little late. You'll forgive me if I go a few minutes over time. Well, okay, if you don't. <laughs> <coughs> Pardon me for my cough too. All right, what do angels do? The Bible says, Revelation 5, 11. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. The angels are around about the throne of God worshiping him, according to the book of Revelation. Angels worship God. And uh, you, might, you could reflect on this for some time. C.S. Lewis did, by the way, on the nature of God, that he creates beings that do nothing but worship him. And I think our tendency is to think, well, there must be something wrong with this with this. Um, being God, then must be awfully self-centered. But uh, what's that? Isn't that our final goal? Yeah, but that is our goal, and that's our purpose in life—to to worship God. The way we worship Him, of course, is through works of service as well as by praising His name. But um, God is such a, a a being of splendor and might, and is so perfect that it is highly appropriate that He has millions of beings that do nothing but worship Him. It's going to be awesome to stand in his presence, not only for the grandeur of his being, but just to see millions of, of other created things around about us that do nothing and have done nothing from all eternity but worship him. They carry out the will of God on earth as well. Psalm 103.21 Bless ye the Lord, all ye his hosts, ye ministers of his, do that do his pleasure. Okay, angels do the pleasure of God. When God wants something done, and here you have to have the picture of an oriental potentate, a king, who is so exalted that he has all these servants round about him, and he just has to say, oh, I wish, you know, this. And then a dozen of them run off to get it done. Um, the idea here is there are these hosts, these angelic hosts, that do nothing but carry out the will of God on earth. The Bible tells us that the law of Moses was ordained through angels, Acts 7, verse 53. Who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. So, He's talking about uh, prophets, let's see, oh, the betrayers and murderers. Yeah, the, the Jews in general received the law as ordained through angels, which gives a heightened um, importance, status to the law, and yet they have broken the law, Stephen says. They execute judgment from God as well. Awesome judgment. Acts 12, verse 23. Acts 12, 23. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. This is one of the Herodian rulers. Um, maybe it's Herod Antipas. I can't remember. I'd have to look it up. But anyway... Uh, because he gave this oration and the people said, oh, the voice of a god, not of man, and Herod didn't correct them, but received the glory, the angel smote him dead, and he was eaten of worms. Angels execute the judgment of God. And they will be aids of God in the last judgment. 
Second Thessalonians one seven. And you who and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Right. They and the angels will be like flaming fire. We read in First Thessalonians chapter four. When Christ returns, it will be with a with a grand parade of angels along with him. Now we come to, I think, the most important passage teaching us the function of angels in terms of its um, effect on us. Hebrews 1, verse 14. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve us who will inherit salvation? What do angels do? Those that are not at the throne of God worshiping him or carrying out the judgments of God and the revelation of God on earth, they are sent into this world to serve God's people. They are ministering spirits sent forth to help those who will inherit salvation. Angels help us. Now I realize that movie makers and cartoon writers and all the rest have, have really uh, secularized and cheapened this concept. But that shouldn't keep us from knowing the Bible teaches angels help us in this world. They minister to us. And naturally the question comes up, you mean there are guardian angels? What does um, Psalm 91 verses 10 to 12 say? No evil will befall you, nor, nor will any plague come near your tent, for he will give his angels charge concerning you, to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands, lest, your foot, lest you strike your foot against the stone. How can we be sure we won't come into this physical infirmity and, and get hurt? Because he will give his angels charge over you. Angels are given to us as guardians to keep us from danger when God wants us to be kept from danger. And not only that, Matthew 18.10 says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. These little ones who belong to Jesus have angels in heaven apparently assigned to these children. And you'd better be very sure you don't offend a small child who is that uh, belongs to Jesus Christ because they have angels in heaven that stand in the very presence of God to protect them. Yes. So you said that angels, um, excuse me, the children of God, when you say children, little children, mm -hmm. does that say, it says, if they're, when they're, they're children of God, does that mean not all little children are children of God? I guess... Um, I say if a little child, two-year-old, drowns or whatever, yes. that necessarily... Our confession of faith teaches, with biblical accuracy and reserve, I think, that all elect infants dying in infancy are saved. So they're going to elect us also at that... Oh yes, election yes. pertains to, you know, from the moment of your conception, actually from all eternity. Yes. And if the child is elect and dies in infancy, that child is saved. But now what is the what is the natural question, which is what everybody wants to ask? Well, are all are all infants elect? And I I know that at least some are, because David said that he would see his son that he lost. He 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 would be united with him again. So we know at least some are. And some people would like to say all are, but uh, there is a counterbalancing teaching in Scripture that children are born, of course, in trespasses and sin. 
and they are born guilty before God. So there would be nothing inappropriate also for children suffering the wrath of God because of the original sin of Adam. But um, the Bible does not answer the question whether all are. If all are, then all have guardian angels. Elect children have guardian angels. That's what I'm trying to teach. Okay, to hurry ahead here now, the history of these angels. Originally, Bob? Doesn't that lead to a question I asked a long time ago? Even before they professed faith in God, they still have those guardian angels because they still are chosen, although they may not know it at that point. They're foreknown having been predestinated. The children. Yeah. Yes, the children are set aside all along from all eternity. Well, they have to have that protection yeah. to get to the point right. where they can make their yeah. first day. <laughs> Yeah, so what's your point? Yeah, I misunderstood. I thought that you had said that no. Well, I think, well, let me, let's talk about it later. It'll take a while. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The history of angels. Originally they were all holy, but some fell into sin. Jude 6. And the angels who do not keep their positions of authority, but abandon their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound for everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Some angels didn't keep their original estate. Translated home there, that's an interesting way of taking that that's Greek word. Uh, right. Well, anyway, they were created in one particular station or estate or home, a proper place for their activity, and they fell from it. They didn't, they didn't stay there. And from that point on, they were destined for judgment. Second Peter 2.4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. Okay, we can stop there. As part of the um, if this, this, and this, and then why not this, part of that is God didn't spare angels. When they sinned, he bound them over for judgment. They are, resumed, uh, they are, they are reserved in, in gloomy places waiting for the judgment of God. Of course, we also know they're active on the earth. That's very important. The Bible teaches us that angels are in chains, and yet they are active on the earth. Later in the book of Revelation, we're going to read that Satan has been, what, enchained, and then when we teach, as I will teach very you know, with conviction, that Satan is now bound. We are now living in the age where he shall not deceive the nations any longer, where the Great Commission can be fulfilled. With Satan being bound, then I have people who disagree say, well, he must be on an awfully long chain then because he's pretty active in the world. <laughs> but you see, the answer, the answer to that is the Bible teaches that the demons were active during the life of Jesus, right? And yet we read that from the day of their fall, they were in chains. Well, this just to show us that it's figurative language. And in one sense, they are restricted, and in another sense, they are active. Uh, Bob? Well, didn't, didn't Satan have to get permission from God before he tempted Job? In other words, they yes. did nothing without the permission of God. That's right. Even the fallen angels are still subject to the um, uh, uh, permission of God, permissive decree of God. Okay, the angels are now divided into sinful Oh, John. Um, you know how before you were saying that the no one knows when the angels were created, like on the first day or the fourth day? Yes. Well, if it wasn't um, Satan sent away from heaven before the creation? Well, some people would say not. 
they would say in the midst of the week of creation, um, Satan um, engaged in whatever act of pride it was that led to his fall. So it's possible that um, that all of this, um, that the fall of Satan took place in the midst of it. Now my own personal feeling is, although it's not definitive, is that because at the end of the sixth day God saw everything that he had made and said, it is good, I don't think Satan fell until after the sixth day of creation, myself. Because I think then God wouldn't have said of everything, it is good. Yes? What caused the, uh, the earth then to become void and without form? We'll take that up on another day. I <laughs> I don't think it has anything to do with Satan anyway. Demons are now, I mean, angels are now divided into elect angels and demons, as we call them, fallen angels. Or, as they are called in 1 John 3, 8 to 10, sinful angels. The one who practices sin is of the devil. The devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin, because he is born of God. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Satan has sinned from the beginning. But there are also holy angels, Matthew twenty-five thirty-one. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. All his holy angels with him. So there are holy angels, angels that are set apart. And these are called in 1 Timothy 5.21, elect angels. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. And now, I have a friend who is a Christian that has, from time to time, ridiculed the idea of elect angels, uh, thinking that this is really uh, uh, something of a peripheral and minor point in Christian teaching. But you see, by calling them elect angels, that keys us into really just about everything we've been talking about. And if the doctrine of angels is important, then the fact that some are elect is important too. And I think we need to find that importance if all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, then there's some profit about that too. Now here comes one of the, the aspects of our teaching tonight that's going to be very hard. And let me just tell you before you ask, you're going to ask me why, and I'm going to tell you I don't know, and more than just I don't know, there are a lot of questions of theology I don't know, but this is one that I don't think can be answered either. It's not just lack of study. I don't think the answer is there. The Bible teaches us that fallen angels are not given help. God will not redeem a fallen angel. Hebrews 2.16 For verily he took not on, on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Christ came not as an angel, to suffer for angels, he came in the form of the seed of Abraham to die for God's human people, for his people. Moreover, Hebrews tells us he does not give help to angels. I think that's 2.14. Is that right, Brian? I haven't got it open. Um, destroyed power. What was the... Um I guess it's... Oh, it's 114. Oh, okay. Are they not all ministering spirits and forth minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Well, I am going to find that verse. 
5 of chapter 2, not unto angels that he subjects the world to come. Well, yeah, it's it's 2.16. For verily not to angels doth he give help, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. What was the translation you had? King James. Mm -hmm. uh, he took not on him the nature of angels. Aha, uh -huh, yeah, I see that in my margin now. I didn't read the King James in preparation. That's what threw me. It, it is this particular verse that says he doesn't give help to angels. Uh, what are, you have NIV? What does it say? For surely it is not angels he helps, but yes. Abraham's descendants. Yeah, so there obviously is a textual variant there, and it is considered uh, more likely that the original said he doesn't give help to angels. But even the. Uh, <coughs> that's right. <coughs> <coughs> angels are not redeemed. But the fallen angels have been triumphed over by Christ's death and resurrection. Colossians 2, verses 10 and 15. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. And 15. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. The principalities and powers yeah, in, are in it, depending on the translation used. In his death and resurrection... Christ has triumphed over the principalities and powers, those orders of fallen angels. And then Hebrews 1, verses 4 to 13. Being made so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth him the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits, and his, and his ministers a flame of fire? But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness, and, hast, and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up. And they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy ears shall not fall, fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? The Bible teaches that Christ himself has been exalted above the angels. In fact, chapter 2 will say, For a short time he was made lower than the angels, but now um, he has been exalted above them. Uh, verse 9 of chapter 2, But we behold him who has been made a, for a little while lower than the angels, even Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. So, Jesus has not only been set above the good angels, by his death and resurrection, he has decisively defeated the evil angels. And in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, if you want to turn there very quickly, this will be our last passage tonight. 1 Peter 3, 15, we read, 
It's not 315. I'm thinking of the verse in apologetics. It's right. Um, verse 18. I'm sorry. Because Christ also suffered for sins, once the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by which he also went and preached unto the spirits in prison. And he goes on to give a description that makes it even more difficult. But we know that Christ went and preached to spirits in prison between his death and resurrection. And I think that preaching was not as the Roman Catholic Church teaches for salvation. I think it's the actually the Greek word there is proclaimed. I think he proclaimed his victory over the demons in prison. And so where they had been consigned waiting for judgment, he went and he demonstrated his victory over them. Okay, do you have any questions about angels and demons real quickly before I try to apply some of this? John. Um, did, when the three visitors came to Abraham, um, did, was God, did God come in the form of an angel? Yes. The angel of the Lord was the central speaker there, and he was the Lord, yes. Is that term angel of the Lord, is that supposed to be always God? Or is that sometimes not like with Herod? Is that God too? Have we find out the angel of the Lord is one of the Old Testament proofs, uh, the initial revelations of the Trinity, I believe, because the angel is treated as God, and yet it's an angel of God. So there is uh, personal differentiation, yet personal identity which is what we have in the Trinity, of course. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God, and yet they are distinct persons. Is the angel of the Lord always a theophany? I'm going to go out on a limb here and generalize. I believe the angel of the Lord is always a theophany of Jesus Christ. So I, I but heard one of the, the reference with Herod, where Herod was struck by the angel of the Lord. Well, I, it may be that we have to distinguish between the angel of the Lord also and an angel of the Lord. Uh, and it's late, and I'm just not prepared to answer for sure what it is in that text, but we can look it up. Well, what are we going to make of all this? I mean, why do we spend this night studying angels? Um, apart from the fact that we need to have this background so we can understand the warfare in heaven when we get together again in Revelation 12. Well, there's more to it than that, and I'll, I'll be brief. First of all, this doctrine of angels tells us that we shouldn't think that reality is just what we see. It is so easy for us to go through this world thinking that what is real is just what I can touch, see, hear, and all that. But the Doctrine of Angels tells us there's a whole bunch more reality than just that. We, um, we should be rebuked in the smallness of our cosmology then. And for that reason, we need to understand the dimensions of our ethical warfare. Isn't it interesting? Paul says, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers with evil powers in high places. Remember that your struggle with sin, let's say you have trouble with uh, anger, or with hatred, or with lust, or with overeating, whatever it may be, your struggle with sin is not just a struggle with flesh and blood, it's a struggle with angels, demonic angels. And that's why Paul says, take to yourself the whole armor of God, 
You're not going to make it unless you are completely equipped because you're fighting a big force. So don't underestimate the difficulty of, our, of your spiritual struggle. And yet the Bible would also say, since angels are there and we don't always take account of that, don't overestimate the difficulty of your spiritual struggle either. You remember the story, um, 2 Kings chapter 6, how Elisha is in Dothan and he's been surrounded by the army of the Arameans and Elisha's servant goes out in the morning to draw water and he sees the army all around. He runs back and he goes, oh no, we've had it, you know, they've surrounded us. And Elisha says, no problem. Greater are those who are with us than those who are with them. The servant says, uh, Elisha, just us two as far as I can see. And there's an awful lot of those guys out there surrounding the city. And so Elisha prays that God will open the eyes of his servant. And his servant opens his eyes and he sees chariots of fire surrounding the army of the Arameans. And so remember that although it may appear that our struggles are difficult, God has angels fighting on our side, on our behalf, and our uh, benefit. So that's the first thing. Remember that reality is more than what you can see. So don't underestimate your spiritual struggle, but don't overestimate. The Bible says that Satan is subject to us, so all we have to do is resist him, and he must flee. That's how much power we have over him. second thing I want to teach you real quickly here about the importance of this is that angels are witnesses to human salvation. We've already seen in 1 Peter 1 how they long to look into this teaching of salvation. How, why is it God saves human beings? And why through suffering and then glory? That sort of thing. But in Ephesians 10, we read that the principalities, the angels, learn the redemptive wisdom of God through the church. Through the church. And that's... a something that not only warns the preacher that when he prepares and delivers his sermons he's not just preaching to the audience out there he's preaching to angels they are learning through the church but also all those who are in the church through your life and what you say and through your witness angels learn from you Isn't that an amazing privilege angels learn from you and so be careful what you say and the way you live you want to teach them right and then thirdly something I think we don't think about is that the doctrine of angels shows us how great our salvation is because according to the Bible we have been exalted above the angels in Christ. We are less than the angels in created glory but in Christ we are made higher than the angels. For in Hebrews 2 we are united with Christ. In fact the whole point of Hebrews 2 the opening passage there is um, about the dominion man is supposed to have. But the Hebrews says well but we don't see that. No, but we see Jesus, who was made higher than the angels, who for a short while was made lower, but has now been exalted. So that we, who are men, redeemed men in Christ, have been raised above the angels with him. That's why in Revelation, it is so wrong for John to worship angels. When he falls down, bows before an angel, angel says, no, no, you don't worship me. It's inappropriate. Angels are lower than us. And of course, you don't worship any created thing anyway. But then... Moreover, if Christ has been exalted above the angels and has triumphed over the demons, we have power over the demons. In Luke 10, when the disciples return to Jesus, they're jumping for joy. They say, we can't believe this. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. And I've already told you, when Satan afflicts you, the Bible says you need only resist him, and he must flee. 
So you see how great our salvation is? We're raised above angels and we even are going to crush the head of Satan according to Romans the 15th chapter. We're going to have dominion even over the evil beings that have fallen, the evil angels, the demons. Well, I've kept you far longer than I had intended and I apologize for that, but I hope that the lesson will prove worthwhile for you. Reflect on this during the month, not only in preparation for the 12th chapter of Revelation, which we can finally get to, but uh, this makes a big difference. There's more to reality than what you see. There are angels fighting against and for you. Angels show us the greatness of our salvation, and angels are learning from us. And so that should affect the way we live and the way we think about things. Mary Beth. Now, our, our intercessory prayer can, is stronger, could be stronger than the demon that is in someone else. Because they aren't praying themselves. But we, could pray, we could pray it out of them. I'm not talking about the exorcist. Well, the Bible says, Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. So the Holy Spirit in us is certainly stronger than the demon afflicting them, yes. Yes. Okay. Other questions before we stop for the evening? Vicki. Oh, what you just said about the angels learning from us. I heard something about 1 Corinthians 11:10, where it says, Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. We were counseling that out a couple of weeks ago in Bible study. We have it work about listening because of the angels. And that, does that fit with that? That is one interpretation of that that the angels learn about submission from seeing that women themselves have the sign of submission. But I'm not ready to affirm that as my own interpretation. I, I kind of throw my hands up. That is such an elliptical expression by Paul. He says, because of the angels. And that can be taken in so many ways that I'm just not settled myself. But it is one plausible interpretation, yes. Well, let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, do rebuke us for the smallness of our vision tonight. We do tend to be tied to our senses so much. And we thank you for teaching us glorious things about these wonderful creatures, indeed dreadful creatures, the angels. We do pray that we would take them into account when we go through our lives, that you have given us guardian angels, and for that we thank you for the protection we have. Above all, we thank you that you have angels that are fighting spiritual battles for us to keep us from temptation. We do pray that we would take seriously the battle we are in, that we might recognize we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but with evil spirits. Lord, we thank you that our Savior, Jesus Christ, has gained the dominion even over them, and that because of the power he grants to us through the indwelling of his Spirit, we too can have dominion over evil spirits. They are subject to us in your name and must flee when we resist them. Lord, give us that kind of confidence and strength that our lives might be more holy. We pray also that you'd make us more like unto the angels in that we recognize your holiness and would cover our very feet as we come into your presence. And we would recognize your glory so that we might cover our face, we might recognize that we are nothing in your sight. And above all, that we might see that we too should learn to worship your name in all that we do, we pray that our very lives would be made a song of praise to you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.